Greetings, everyone. I'm your host of the Early Link Podcast. My name is Rafael Otto. Today, I'm talking with Subin O, oh, who works for Children's Institute as the Senior Early Education Advisor. He's also adjunct faculty at Portland State University in early childhood education. Subin, it's great to be talking with you today. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah, um, my pleasure. We're going to be talking about bias and how it manifests in education and the concept of anti-bias education. And I know that you've taught about this topic quite a bit, so I appreciate your time to talk about it today. One of my uh, favorite and I feel just such an important topic, so happy to be here. How did you get involved in this topic specifically? I think my first introduction to anti-bias education was encountering the Helen Gordon Child Development Center at Portland State University, uh, which is the lab early childhood school. And they were using anti-bias education in a way that was very visible. They had these persona dolls and they had uh, representations of different genders, race. And when I saw that, I felt that they were leaning into topics that I, as a teacher at that time, felt really uncomfortable talking about with young children. And so when I saw that, I started asking questions, and that's how I found anti-bias education. There's this idea, I know in, in some of the presentations that you've done, where you kind of start off with this idea that we don't yet live in a world where all children have equal opportunity to really become all that they can be. Talk about what that means in this, this idea of, of bias. This concept that because of where a child is born, because of the color of their skin, because of the religion they might have grown up with, because of their gender expression, that will impact a child's life in a way that has nothing to do with choices that the child is making. And because of that, um, and you know, just to kind of hammer that point, that is borne out in statistics, and you can see that in a policy context. So it's not just a, an idea or a, a theory. It's uh, been shown time and time again that that's what is happening. And I think a lot of times people can point out explicit bias. They can point out when someone is being hateful or when they're being derogatory to a particular group of people. They can easily identify that as something that is wrong. What anti-bias does for educators is introduce the idea that there are ways that we're interacting with children that may not be explicit. It may not be hateful, but we may be, for example, pushing young girls to behave in a certain way differently than how we interact with young boys. And it happened it, that also is borne out in other social identities as well, whether it's race, religion, class, uh, and so on. Say more about that because bias, it manifests in different ways. There's uh, instructional bias, there's the explicit bias that you mentioned, which I think is easier to recognize, and there's implicit bias. And those are all very different things. Help, help us understand what that means. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think you mean institutional bias, right? Institutional bias. And I... Usually, when I go and talk about anti-bias education, that's one of the first things that I talk about, the difference between institutional bias, explicit bias, and implicit bias. So institutional bias is what I just described uh, in terms of the way certain people have uh, advantages over others 
And there's this tendency within institutions to privilege some over others. So this is you can see it in uh, housing and housing discrimination, uh, wealth inequality, in police shooting fatalities, educational outcomes. These biases come out there, right? Then there's explicit bias, which is the outward attitude and belief that an individual has about another group or a specific person, and this is a conscious choice that this person is making. If they have this explicit bias towards that person, and you can see it, you can observe it. Then there's this idea of implicit bias,、um, and there's a whole body of research around implicit bias.、Um, I encourage you to look at the implicit association test. Um, out of Harvard to get a glimpse into what implicit bias is, and this is an attitude or a belief that a person holds, and it's at a like unconscious level. It belongs in all of us. We all have it, myself included, and we can't address that by ignoring it or saying, "Well, I'm not racist. I'm not sexist." If we have the attitude that we're Not responsible for our biases, then we'll never be able to counteract the tendency that exists within how we behave. Is there an example? Because I know that implicit bias is often it's a little bit more difficult to understand. So, is there an example that you could describe about how that manifests in a classroom? Yeah, yeah. So, for example, with young girls. A lot of times, a lot of comments are directed at their appearance, or the way they're dressed, right? Their appearance, and a lot of times with boys, we tend to make a lot of comments about their effort or their strength, and those kinds of interactions accumulate, and the child develops a sense of what is good, what is right. What is important based on our interactions with them, and so this isn't just about gender. It、uh, shows up in many different ways. For example, in a previous podcast, I know you interviewed Walter Gilliam, and something that he found in his research is that if there are、uh, children of color, and in his study, he was looking at black children. When you teachers tend to observe black children more and sense. Have an almost an intuition that they believe that they're going to have some sort of behavioral problem, so that implicit bias is there. And there are several other examples of this. There's a whole body of research related to implicit bias. There are a lot of historical examples of how our education system was set up to, in some ways. I mean, would you describe it as a form of suppressing difference? Yeah, I mean, so when we start getting into the history of education and especially public education, which is, in my opinion,、uh, America's greatest achievement, there has always been a question raised about what to do with diverse children and families in our schools.、Mm-hmm. And you know, if we go back two hundred years ago, the answer to that was to teach them the quote unquote the American way. And so they taught patriotism and civics, and、um, they taught English only, and that's actually going on still in some places.、Um, but there was this idea that what the 
people up top, the deciders, the decision makers, what they knew to be best was good for everyone. And that started to change uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago uh, in the civil rights movement. It started to change where there became more of an approach of uh, what people call multicultural education. And that approach was more about treating difference as uh, equal, right? That, that, that difference was equal, but it was still sanitized. There was still an idea that everyone should be uh, the same. Nowadays, there are a lot of different approaches to that I would say kind of stem from the multicultural education movement that treat difference and diversity as not that everything's equal because that absolves the pain and the injustices that have happened in history. Rather, it takes into account historical and contextual factors and seeks to, for example, sustain someone's culture, their language, their heritage, or perhaps um, to be responsive to a particular community and context. So that's where you get terms like culturally sustaining pedagogy or culturally responsive pedagogy. And to not treat those differences as deficits. Yeah, yeah, that's an important point. Um, there are a number of researchers, uh, uh, what comes to mind First is uh, Molin, Gonzalez, and Amanti who talk about family funds of knowledge. And the idea there is that families have a great deal of cultural heritage knowledge that can be and should be used by educators as a platform for not just curricular choices, but also just programmatic choices within the school. And so there's the family funds of knowledge. Then there's also Tara Yoso, who talks about community wealth, cultural community wealth. And the idea there is that a lot of times, uh, okay, we're going to get academic for a second. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Right? Let's go for it. <laughs> There was this guy, and his name was Pierre Bourdieu, and he talked about this idea of social capital. And that's very different than wealth capital, right? So wealth capital is the accumulation of dollars and cents, money. Social capital is the idea that if you have a certain type of language, attitude, your clothing, uh, the way you interact in certain social circles, that that builds you up in a certain way to have the ability to navigate social situations and win and get what you need. And so you can imagine with that idea of social capital that certain people are privileged just by being born into a certain community, by having the, if you, for example, if you speak language, you have a tremendous advantage in America and not just in America. So what Tara Yoso did was she took this idea of social capital and she said, there are many forms of social capital. There are many forms of wealth. For example, resistance capital, the idea that if you are a person of color and the world is telling you through its multiple messages, whether it's through media or through interactions or because of just the way people interact with your community, the world might be telling you that something's wrong with you, that you are something that needs to be corrected. To resist that idea and to have a positive self-identity is a type of wealth that you wouldn't have if you didn't have those lived experiences. And so 
Yoso's work um, with community cultural wealth and family funds of knowledge. Those are two examples of asset-based approaches to um, working with children and families. So this idea of anti-bias education, I'd like if you could talk a little bit more about what this looks like in terms of rolling out in a classroom, what this means. I know that there's been there's been a lot of work done around this on how to do that. Uh, there's, there are a number of tools for educators, so maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those tools. But say more about what anti-bias education really looks like in practice. The way anti-bias education looks into the classroom is you're leaning into topics that children are grappling with, with or without you. So children are encountering ideas around who families are and how families are composed, race, and why certain people are treated differently. They might notice something and have questions about that. They might notice that about gender, right? They might notice that about ability and the way um, certain children are behaving in the classroom. And they have these questions. And any bias education gives permission to everyone involved, not just the teachers, but families and children as well, to lean into those uncomfortable topics and to not only discuss them, but to actively investigate them as a form of, whether it's project-based learning or thematic-based learning, as a form of vehicle for learning. And so that's the way anti-bias education looks in a classroom. There are multiple strategies involved. Um, if you go to the textbook, um, anti-bias education is a textbook. It's the second best-selling book by the National Association for the Education of Young Children, the NAEYC. And their textbook is structured around different social identities. So I'm going to miss a few, and they're all important, but... Uh, race, class, gender, religion, and uh, and others, um, all equally important. And the textbook, it takes all of those different social identities and gives teachers ideas and structure around how to lean into those topics with young children. Because here's the alternative. The alternative is children just do it on their own, and they figure out that out on their own. The term for that from uh, sociology is the hidden curriculum. And children will then make up their own minds around how to talk about race and money and families. And as a teacher, as an educator, I feel a moral imperative, a moral dilemma to do that with young children alongside them in a safe place, in a, in a place that um, is structured, as opposed to children just doing that on their own. Are there examples, because when you talk about the hidden curriculum, to me, that is something that resides not just in the classroom. It res it's a reflection of a child's experience in the home, in society in general. So are there examples of anti-bias education that includes families or, or tries to take on that larger context? I would say that like central to anti-bias education is the inclusion and engagement of families, uh, that it's not likely to be done well if you're not including and engaging families. What's an example of what that really looks like, hands-on parents and families working together? Yeah, um, I'll share an example from my personal experience. 
I had a child in my classroom who did not have a positive experience with their previous teacher and their, not just the teacher, but in the previous classroom setting, it wasn't working well for that child. Uh, this was a child um, with uh, special needs or special rights or um, living with disability, whatever your preferred terminology is. And the disability was a visible one, something that you could uh, see. And the family, the parent, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm tearing up thinking about this, uh, uh, this parent because she came and in her first meeting described how in, her, in the child's first few months, the doctor said that the child had very little chance of surviving the first year. And through her energy, effort, advocacy, um, that child was thriving. And at that time, as her teacher, she was four years old. And one of the concerns that the uh, mother had was she didn't want the disability to define her child. She wanted the child, she knew her child well enough, and I could see right away, that the child wanted to have meaningful relationships, meaningful interactions, uh, that she wanted to participate in everything that was going on in the classroom. And... After that first meeting, knowing that's also what I wanted as well, um, she and I really partnered up. She came and talked about her child, even did some professional learning with our teaching team in the classroom when we were making uh, environmental decisions in terms of the classroom environment. She was involved in that decision-making. Uh, when it came to meetings with her uh, therapist and her interventionists, she and I were on the same page and uh, working together um, in those conversations. Um, and so that's a, an example of taking something that might otherwise just have been corrective, right? An intervention approach would have been there's something that needs to be corrected and fixed here. Our early intervention is very important, especially the younger the better, right, if something's going on. But in that, in my role in uh, using an anti-bias education kind of approach and lens was to partner up with that family. That's a, yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that story. It's yeah, a, thanks. That's a powerful example of how those two worlds connected. Yeah, it was powerful for me too. It's something that I carry with me. I have this child's uh, photograph at my home desk. I have photographs of the work of children all around me. And um, yeah, this one will stay with me forever. I wanted to ask you, There's a, you've given some examples in the past of things that you can do in the classroom. You can take a look at the books that kids are reading, the literature, and examine the bias that shows up in those things. And there's also this idea of looking at diversity as sort of, uh, I think it's it's called tourist curriculum, right? You look at something that might not be considered quote-unquote normal. You kind of treat it like a tourist topic. And then after you teach or address that topic, you move back to sort of the normal world or the normal things that you would be working on. Say more about those pieces and how they manifest in the classroom. Yeah. So children's literature and the tourist curriculum. Let's start with children's literature. So children's literature, and we're talking about books for young children, um, is I think one of the best starting places, if you're thinking about anti-bias education, is one of the best starting places for an educator to investigate and interrogate first. And 
what anti-bias education encourages us to do is to look at the books that we're reading with young children and unpack some of the hidden messages that are within those books. For example, there might be books that are dealing with topics in history and they're sanitizing or making light of issues that were very harmful or painful for people. So, for example, um, in a presentation uh, that I've done in the past, I've shared that there was a book written about enslaved people, and it was representing slavery as if everyone was friends, as if they were buddies. <laughs> and um, Or employees. Yeah, or employees. E even right? that level. Yeah, yeah. Right? And uh, that kind of an image is not helpful for anyone, whether you are a person of color, a black person, or not. If you're seeing an image like that, and that is the history that you're being taught, then that's not a responsible choice from the educator, right? And um, there might be something less obvious. So for example, there might be representations of a certain person's culture, right? Or a certain group of people's culture. And so there's a very popular book series called Skippy John Jones. And it's used in classrooms. You might have it in your home right now. And it shows a Siamese cat who's pretending to be a chihuahua and says things like, I'm Skippito Frisquito, I'm a bandito. And I share that quote, um, and that's a paraphrased quote, because it's basically projecting tropes and stereotypes about uh, Latino culture that, again, is just not helpful for anyone involved and can be particularly hurtful if it's representing your culture. Another issue related to children's literature is, so I am a Korean person, and I look for books around being a Korean American. And to my knowledge, uh, in all my searches for stories about Korean American children, and I've done a lot of searching, I've found three, three books written about Korean American children. And I'm talking about storybooks. So when we're talking about diverse communities, diverse children, do you have books that represent the culture and the communities that you're serving? Do you have books that counteract or maybe even disrupt some of the stereotypes and hidden messages that otherwise exist in the media? Do you have books in the languages that people speak in your schools? Do you have books and here's where anti-bias education, I would say there's a category of books called anti-bias education books, right? This is a term that I've given. There's no actual category like this, where they will have images, so for example, of same-sex couples, which are rarely found in children's books, right? Right. right. And you'll see same-sex couples and same-sex families in a book, and children can then read a story like that, see that imagery, and of course, they'll ask questions if it's not part of their lived experience or something that they've uh, seen before. And that's an example of leaning into uncomfortable topics with young children, as opposed to letting them kind of do that on their own. I know I packed yeah. a lot into that yeah. question. So yeah. that's you kind of addressed literature and how that looks in the classroom. 
And then there's also the element of tourist curriculum. So I'd like you to talk about that. Yeah. So the tourist curriculum. So previously, when I was talking about multicultural education and um, dealing with difference in uh, educational settings, it was thought to be good at multicultural education practice to celebrate the cultures of everyone involved in the classroom. I agree, right? It's important to do something like that. And so let's say, for example, you had a Chinese child or Chinese children in your classroom that you would do Chinese New Year's, which actually encompasses a number of days, not just one day. And they would do a few different activities, pass around red envelopes, maybe see a dragon dance or two. And then they go back into the regular curriculum, the normal curriculum, quote unquote normal, that they're supposed to be doing. And that celebration, that event, there was, there's nothing wrong, right? There's not, the children aren't particularly harmed by that particular episode, right? But the hidden message, the hidden curriculum in that particular series of events is that the difference, the diversity, the Chinese identity is exotic. It's different. We treat that, we go and visit it like a tourist, right? And by the way, only really visit the surface aspects of it, right? So food and celebrations and things like that, things that you would do if you were traveling to another country. And then you return back to, again, quote unquote, normalcy. And so that tourist curriculum shows up everywhere. Another example I like to use is Cinco de Mayo. Educators might have, uh, especially in early childhood education, might have particular activities around Cinco de Mayo and painting sombreros and making um, things that rattle and shake and things of that nature. And I don't know if any of the listeners are Mexicano or if you've ever talked to a Mexicano person and you ask them about what is the meaning of Cinco de Mayo and they say, nothing. It's not an important day in our history, in our culture. It's not our Independence Day. So a lot of meaning is packed into that day for young kids. And again, it's just treating the Mexicano culture as something to visit on that day and then you return back to the regular curriculum. I think this is a difficult topic to bring up, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> Let, let's do it. Let's go there. Um, I think what is hard for people to see, if you haven't interrogated it before, if you're not a person of color, what's hard to see is that the quote-unquote normal curriculum is steeped in what academics call whiteness. And I'm separating whiteness from white people. So whiteness is a particular attitude or way of being or the certain artifacts that relate to Western European culture, right? So for example, I am steeped in whiteness. I don't speak Korean. I speak English. I uh, attended higher education. I went through all of these series of experiences that give me some of the privileges that come along with whiteness. I conformed to that, right? In kindergarten, I learned pretty quickly. The hidden curriculum was pretty clear for me. Being Korean was not an advantage. It wasn't going to help me. Speaking Korean, 
It wasn't measured in any way. It wasn't going to help me succeed. It wasn't going to help me make friends. In fact, it might actually um, uh, be un- counterproductive to be making friends, right? Sure. Um, eating my food that people would call smelly or speaking my language that people would call strange, interacting with people in a way that my parents or grandparents interacted with me was thought as different, right? When at that age, all I'm trying to do is to feel belonging and to feel significance and to be included. When children learn or see that their heritage is something that they need to push aside in order to thrive, in order to succeed, that I feel is a description is the opposite of what would happen in an anti-bias education setting. Mm -hmm. And that's the tendency of what happens. So now, it isn't until now, uh, three or four years ago, where I started to be called Subin. When I was five years old, my name was Subin. And I would go to school, and I was a bigger kid, and people would call me Sumo. And that was, I would go home crying and upset, And my parents talked to the teachers, and the teacher tried to do something about it, but to no avail. And so I said, Dad, I'm an American. I want an American name. I was starting to push. My my first language was Korean, and I don't speak Korean anymore. That was my first language. So at five, you make this request to your father. At five years old, I tell my dad, I want an American name. So he comes into the classroom, and he says, this child... My child, he's American. He's going to choose his name. Choose your name. And he points to me. <laughs> and just he on the spot. Me, just on the spot, <laughs> right? And at that time, I was, you know, going to uh, Sunday school, and I chose the name David from King David. I liked that story. Okay. Um, I liked the underdog. I, I, I felt a, a relationship with the underdog. And so from then, from five years old, I was called David all the way up until three years ago, where I started learning about these ideas. I started learning about culturally sustaining pedagogy and asset-based approaches. And I said, I'm going to reclaim my heritage, my culture, the one that I had pushed aside for my entire childhood and adolescence and early adulthood. I had pushed it aside. And now I'm trying to reclaim it. And it's this journey that I don't feel like I needed to be on, right? Like, I could have had it all along. Yeah. Um, and it's such a shame. You know, I, I think that's what propels me um, in doing this work is to just ensure that that doesn't happen to anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. yeah. There's some additional work being done in Oregon and Washington, some other people working on this and doing some really great work. If you could talk a little bit about who they are and what they're doing. Yeah, so the first shout out <laughs> that I definitely should give is to my uh, mentor, colleague, doctoral chairperson, please give me a good grade, um, <laughs> John Nimmo, uh, Dr. Nimmo. He moved here uh, a couple of years ago and uh, joined the faculty at Portland State University. And he's written a book about leading anti-bias education programs. And it's a great book if you're listening to this podcast and you're a leader and you want to do something about this. You you want to kind of start this journey of attending to bias and counteracting the hidden curriculum. I would start with anti-bias education from NAEYC. 
But the second book I would recommend to you is Leading Anti-Bias Education Programs by John Nimmo, and he has two co-authors that I can't, one of them I know, but um, Debbie Lee Keenan. I would encourage you to read that book because in that book, you're going to have to contend with a few things. There's your staff, right? There's your staff and how they're going to come along on this journey. Um, Some of your staff might be really willing and eager to join in this work. Some might have questions and some might outright be resistant. And then equally as important are your families and how the families are feeling about and thinking about this work. And it's important to bring them on early into the process and for them to be co-architects of any programmatic changes that you're uh, bringing to your program. The next shout out that I'd love to give is to uh, Hadia Miller. Hey, Hadia. (laughs) And uh, Katie Kissinger uh, from the Threads of Justice Collective. Um, They have uh, been doing really important work for a long time now um, with anti-bias education, bringing these ideas out to conferences, presentations, workshops. They host their own events. They'll come to your school if that's something that you want. And uh, Katie Kissinger has written a wonderful book about anti-bias education as well. Another person to our neighbors in the North, (laughs) um, Debbie Lee Keenan uh, out in Seattle. She co-wrote the book with John. I've met her a couple times now. She's a wonderful person. John and Debbie are working on a video series that takes these ideas, these practices and strategies of anti-bias education and puts it in a video format so that people can see it and um, hear from the voices of educators who are implementing these strategies. Last thing, this isn't a shout out to a particular person, but the new version of anti-bias education should be released in about five to six months. The last version was written in 2010, so it's a little dated, but the new version should be coming out soon, as well as the new version of developmentally appropriate practice that's coming along as well. Subin, it was great to have you on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. It's great talking with you. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure that every child in Oregon has the best start in life. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Join us and tune in on 99.1 FM on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 4.30 p.m. Episodes are also available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.